following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. short text today. I'm just going to read John 7, 37 through 39. Listen to the Word of God. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is God's holy word. On a recent vacation in Massachusetts, we stopped at a site a farmhouse near Pittsfield, Massachusetts, that was the home of the author Herman Melville. Always been interested in Melville, a man who had a difficult life. One great book, of course, and some minor ones survived and found out that he spent a large part of his life depressed that his works did not sell better. But in the gift shop of Herman Melville's home, I picked up a book by Nathaniel Philbrick called In the Heart of the Sea. It's a novel, actually, but based on a true incident that was apparently well-known in the 19th century. The loss of the Nantucket whaling ship named the Essex. The Essex apparently has the strange uniqueness about it that it was the only ship ever known to be lost by a deliberate attack by a large sperm whale. This huge whale attacked the Essex, ramming it twice, breaking the ship apart, and literally causing it to sink. And this was one of the incidences that gave Herman Melville some inspiration, of course, to come up with a fellow named Moby Dick. The crew of the Essex had quite an amazing time. They were able to rescue a few supplies, some barrels of water, some food, a few implements, but had to grab everything quick and throw them into a couple of whaleboats in which they spent the next several months of being miserably marooned in the South Pacific and not drifting towards anything that could be called friendly land. It's a gruesome story if you ever want to explore it. It actually involves the horrors of cannibalism on some of the men who died. But the thing for me that is relevant to our text today is to just be reminded again of the hardship of thirst. When the ship's officers could parcel out a few mouthfuls 
of fresh water per day, knowing they'd be weeks and weeks, having no idea how long a couple small water casks would last. Men grew to the point where their tongues felt like pieces of wood in their mouth, and they could not think about anything but the ravishing thirst that almost drove them mad. If you children wonder how is it you could be thirsty when you're on an ocean, the problem is you can't drink that stuff you're floating on because salt water just makes you more thirsty and does more damage to your body. In our easy American lives, I think we, we hardly know what thirst is. You probably know where all the drinking fountains are in this building. And you at home can so easily grab a glass or a paper cup and get cold water that's fresh and pure or get something from the refrigerator and satisfy your thirst anytime you want to. I remember, though, a lasting impression that I had of the land of Israel years ago, the first time I was there, the only time I've been there, to come home. And the phrase kept running through my mind, a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Now, there's water, of course, in Israel, but it's not nearly as plentiful. It definitely is not Lancaster County in its greenness, I can tell you that. And we know that biblical people had to scrape out farms from soil that could sometimes become as hard as concrete, and the rains would be longed for, and they would not come. And thus you understand why the imagery is in the Old Testament of He makes me to lie down in a green pasture and leads me beside still waters. Those were idyllic places that for people often would not be seen for long periods of their life. Anything green and wet represented the great blessing of God on people's lives. Well, here in the Gospel of John, we know we've been dealing with symbols, especially chapter 6 covered so much about Jesus as the bread of life coming out of the feeding of the 5,000 and then getting into the things he said about eating my flesh, drinking my blood. We know he wasn't speaking literally, but yet graphically wanting us to understand that we had to become united to him in our faith to literally take the life of Christ into ourselves. And now, as we come to John seven thirty seven and following, we have another image being raised by Jesus. One commentator says it's as if there's an invitation here that ought to be written on every Bible page in letters of gold. As Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I want to give you a simple consideration of this today in terms of first seeing a great need you must recognize, seeing also a sure remedy for the need, and then seeing a lifelong source of satisfaction. First of all, a great need we must recognize. When I think of being thirsty and different images and different experiences in my own life, I realized sharply once again, I hadn't remembered this for years, that my mom was one who would not usually buy carbonated beverages for our house. I grew up under great deprivation. (laughs) A mom who said, we called it pop 
in my part of the world. I've lost that term a long time ago, but it was called pop in western New York. No pop. Not good for you, costs money, won't buy it. Well, you know, you deny a kid something like that, you're just feeding the desire to have it all the more. Thankfully, I had a grandmother. (laughs) And I would visit grandma and grandpa's farm, go there sometimes to help out at age 10 or 12, bring the hay in from the field, hot, dusty work, and I would look forward to grandma's refrigerator, which always contained beautiful glass bottles of Pepsi-Cola, 12-ounce Pepsi-Cola, the water beaded down the surface. And when I came in from the hot field, I knew what was awaiting me, and I knew the best secret of all, that it wasn't mom guarding that refrigerator. It was grandma who didn't care how many bottles I drank. Thank you, grandma. I still think of that. It's like the the great shimmering mirage whenever I think of, of quenching thirst. Well, we pause for a minute to let me paint in some background here for John 7. The whole chapter, and the reason I said I could, in a way, deal with this chapter, even though there are many other things we could have brought out here, uh, the, the chapter is centered upon the attendance of the disciples of Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, probably the second greatest feast after the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice of coming with your lamb and so on that signified forgiveness of sin. The Feast of Tabernacles was another annual feast. It was basically a harvest festival, and it was a joyful time. You came, in many cases, if you could, for the whole week, or especially the end of the week. And this was a case of people rejoicing in the Lord for His providing water for the land and the growth of crops and so on. And it included looking back into their history and being thankful for God delivering Moses and the people in the Exodus by water gushing from the rock. That was thought of and brought out in in this whole uh, time. It was a happy festival. Everyone was joyful. Also called the Feast of Booths, by the way, as well as Tabernacles. And some of you know the modern Jewish celebration today still remembers the Feast of Booths, and you'll see little little shelters built in the yard of a, a temple or a synagogue. Well, one of the things that happened that's significant for you to know and really frames the words of Jesus here is what happened at the end of the feast. A group of priests wearing white robes would go down to the pool of Siloam, a water source there in Jerusalem, and the chief priest would have a gold-plated, or maybe it was solid gold, I'm not sure, but it was definitely a gold pitcher. And he would take it and dip it in the pool of Siloam, and then with a great ceremony, they would carry this pitcher of water up to the temple and to the altar of the temple, singing psalms of praise as they went, praise for for God being fruitful, bringing fruit to the land. Isaiah 12, 3 has a theme of it, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then when they reached the altar, the climactic Uh, enactment of this whole week of celebration was the priest taking the pitcher of uh, the gold pitcher and literally splashing the water over the entire great altar, and it would run down 
the altar of God, and the people would rejoice. Now, you have to have that in your mind. And if you do have that in your mind, then you have to picture Jesus, who, by the way, if you want to go back and read the earlier part of this chapter, you see Jesus didn't go up to Jerusalem for the early part of the week. He came late. And remember also that he was always avoiding unnecessary publicity. People were wanting to make him a king or, you know, somehow gather around him and do things he wasn't seeking. And he said no and disappeared Here he is coming to the last day of this feast in Jerusalem, a crowded place full of throngs of people in the temple court apparently on the last climactic day of the feast. Verse 37, what I've just described to you has happened. The people have that celebration, the pouring of the water from the golden pitcher in their mind when Jesus steps forward in the public square raises his voice in a way that many would hear him say, if any of you are thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Hardly an act to avoid publicity. All of a sudden, Jesus is doing something very bold. Speaking about soul thirst, of course, the kind of thirst that Psalm 42.1 says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where shall I go to find my God? And Jesus says, if this is a thirst you are familiar with, and he knew that many would be, if you're thirsty for God and you're aware of it, do you know where to find satisfaction? I'm here to tell you, come to me. Drink from me. Familiar terminology, very much like him saying in the previous chapter, eat my flesh and drink my blood, that some people thought was a revolting thing to say. Jesus was saying, you need to not only recognize what spiritual thirst is, you need to know where to go to have it satisfy. And he proposed that he himself was the one who could bring a wonderful and unique satisfaction to those who would seek it. You know, I suggest to you there's a great difference between dealing with physical thirst and spiritual thirst. With physical thirst, it's such a demanding need and requirement, you can't help but know it if you're thirsty. The really curious, curious thing today is my mouth is absolutely parched as I'm preaching today. I'm not quite sure what this is all about, but I've never been so dry as preaching this particular sermon. But physical thirst craves water, right? You want a glass of that cold lemonade or something from the refrigerator. You want that Pepsi-Cola or whatever your favorite drink is. And your body says, get it for me, get it for me. Please slake this thirst. There's no denying what has to be done there. But in the case of spiritual thirst, it's interesting because spiritual thirst operates at a level deep in our lives, in our minds, in our spirit, and it can create certainly a sense of need, a sense of want, a sense of something lacking, an unfulfilled void in our life, and yet we don't quite know what to do with it. And so we end up many times in our human ignorance and sin trying to fill that need by all kinds of things other than that which will fill it. 
a teenager can somehow sense the emptiness or the anxiety of that need, and they would think, well, oh, there's something lacking in my life. I guess I need to belong to the more popular crowd of kids. How do I get into that crowd? I need a better wardrobe. I need more extracurricular activities. I need to get into the right college. And that will take care of this need, this lack that I feel. A person in midlife, a man or woman on a career track, you've, you've gone a few rungs up the ladder, you've got a decent job, but you find you're not quite satisfied with it, and you say, I, I need a better income, and I need a bigger challenge, or maybe I need to live in a different house or something. And, and of course, people can even form such conclusions to say, I need a different husband or a different wife, or, or I need more liquor on Saturday night, or whatever. And they seek to fill the ache, the need that is fundamentally spiritual with something material or relational. People are always attempting to quench spiritual thirst with something that is not spiritual, and it backfires. It's just like marooned sailors drinking seawater. It's disastrous. If you do it, you make your situation much worse. The salt ruins and and creates the, the even greater thirst. It is not appropriate to satisfying the need that you have. The Lord speaks about this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where he stated there in the Scripture, my people have committed two evils. They have first forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and then they have hewn out for themselves broken cisterns that hold no water. They're trying to fulfill spiritual need in material ways. And I joined Jesus in asking. And I trust I know a a good reply from certainly many of you, hundreds of you even, and yet I certainly can't speak for all of you. Do you realize that your most pressing need is the thirst to be made right with the living God? That vague sense of unease or things not quite right or something out of adjustment or a vacuum and emptiness, where does it come from? You've wondered, and you've tried to do something to satisfy it, and it hasn't worked. The Spirit of God speaks to people by implanting quiet dissatisfaction inside us. The, The interesting thing is later in this text in verse 28, where it says, out of his heart, some of the Translations say, out of his belly, out of your gut, the core of who you are, your material being, there's this something that is dissatisfied. And you've tried to satisfy it many ways without doing it. You need to realize the need is spiritual and the need is to be right with God. And once you do, you can look for where to satisfy Well, Jesus says here where you should satisfy it. There's a sure remedy offered for this deep needs in the second place. Come to me and drink. He doesn't say follow this formula or adopt this pattern of religious exercises. He says, come to me. Come to me and me only. This is the Son of God. He was the fulfillment 
to that exercise that had just gone on, attracting the interest of hundreds of people at the Jerusalem temple. All the splendor of the priests in their white robes and the gold pitcher and the water splashing and the songs rising up from many throats. And he steps forth and say, do you really want to know what this ritual is all about? Come to me and I will satisfy that which you can't find anywhere else. He might well have been saying the same famous words that we are familiar with from Isaiah 55. Come, buy wine and milk without money. You see, in the, in the land of Palestine, the greatest, most prized drinks of all would be wine and milk, hard to get, expensive. Come and buy the best thing to drink that there is. Why do you spend yourself on that which does not satisfy? God said you can have that which satisfies and not pay your money. It's a gift. Here's a wonderful invitation from Jesus Christ when he says, come to me and drink. I've noticed it seems like this last few months, Carol and I have gotten an awful lot of invitations. Thank you so much for the way you include us in so many things, inviting us to graduation parties and You know, we've been invited to weddings and picnics and, you know, you have to sort out which of these are we able to do. We can't even do all of them, but here's the supreme invitation. And it's not to just select people. Jesus gives this as a general invitation. Come to me. He speaks to the people of Jerusalem, to rich and poor, to Jew and Gentile, to those already his disciples and those not. He gives this broad invitation without class distinction to all who sense that their souls are dry and parched and that there's some kind of an emptiness in the center of their gut. He says, come to me. Cast yourself on me. Leave your cause with me. Bring your emptiness to me. And let me pour into you the grace and mercy and forgiveness and fullness of God. We've all been reading news reports about the drastic droughts in California and the Southwest. It's pretty bad. I was pretty shocked by a report I saw just not very long ago about how catastrophic it is for crops in California and the Southwest and the cattle lakes that are showing their their entire basins that no one's seen the bottom of these lakes for decades. It's nearing disaster levels, and we're paying for it at the supermarket, as you may well know. But just imagine if farmers and ranchers and people that are being devastated by that drought out in the southwest, just imagine, now this isn't a, a true thing, but if there was a river that is not found on the map, just if, there was an imaginary river, a big river with more water in it than the Mississippi that wound its way through the southwest, through New Mexico and Arizona and and up through California and then looping around, coming back down Nevada and back into Texas, a huge, rushing, deep river of water. What a difference that would make. But suppose that river did exist and Farmers knew it existed, but they said, oh, well, we can't water our fields from that stream. We won't take that water. You would say, well, why in the world not? Why wouldn't you 
access a wonderful, full, broad, abundant river flowing past your fields. But you see, we can say the same thing to many people who know, at least in a general manner, something about Jesus Christ. And they hear his invitation, come to me and drink. And they do not come to him. And they do not drink. And we say, why don't you? What in the world is wrong with you? I have come and and he's satisfied my need. He's satisfied my longing, one of old hymns says. But people don't come. They prefer to go back to their own broken cisterns and their relational solutions and their material solutions that somehow try to squeeze some drops of moisture out of life that will satisfy them. Jesus staked out something very bold here in this invitation. He said, come to me. I am unique. Only in me can you drink deeply and meet God and meet the satisfaction of the need that you have. I am the fountain of life. For someone to say that, we go back to what we've said many times before, he's either a madman or he's the Savior of God. And we can conclude today by adding these words of Jesus in verses 38 and 39 here. For having spelled out the need and then showing himself as the unique remedy of the need, now he shows the most satisfying and lasting result that comes when he says, whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he said this about the Holy Spirit. That's John's comment on what Jesus was saying. There are many Old Testament promises where this says, as the Scripture said, it's not necessarily quoting one single verse here. We don't know of what one single verse might be meant, but you can think of many things the Scriptures would say along this line. Isaiah 58, 11. The Lord is, promises there, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong so that you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose source never fails. What a wonderful promise that is. Or Psalm 1, you know that. Psalm 1, 3, famously describing the man or woman of God who is said to be like a tree planted by streams of water. John gives his explanation here in the last part of verse 39, and he's sort of giving you an editorial comment as he does various places in the gospel, adding to the words of Jesus. And he says, Jesus was speaking about the Holy Spirit. And it would be the Holy Spirit, of course, poured out on the church from the day of Pentecost onward that every believer who comes to name the name of Christ and say, Jesus Christ is Lord, says it by the Spirit, or he says it not at all. Paul says in Ephesians, if you have not the Spirit of Christ in you, you would never call Jesus Lord in the first place. Now, the Spirit wasn't invented in the time of the New Testament church. The Spirit always existed from Genesis onward. But the new fullness and resurgence of the Holy Spirit comes to us people of God in Christ in this era. Remember Jesus told the woman at the well of Samaria in John 4, we studied that, when he said, whoever drinks the water I will give will never thirst. 
and whoever takes the water I give will find it is a spring welling up to eternal life. This is a common image, isn't it? The peace and the hope and the comfort and the satisfaction that we experience in Christ is not something that comes only one day when we first have, it first dawns on us that we need to trust Christ and, wow, I'm a Christian, wonderful, I'm, I'm feeling good all over. That's not what this text is saying. This text is saying there'll be a spring in your life that is resurgent. Living water is water that is on the move, that regenerates your life. The Christian life is no stagnant pond. It's a fountain, a fountain of the Spirit of God, both teaching you new truth and constantly reassuring you and establishing you in things perhaps you've heard long before. Well, we can conclude with Martin Luther. Luther paraphrased the words of Jesus in this these uh, few verses here, and here's what he wrote. Luther said, the one who comes to Christ, the Lord will equip not only to be personally satisfied and to quench his own thirst, but also he will become a Holy Spirit vessel streaming forth gifts to be able to console and strengthen many others. Great theology, Luther. You would expect him to, to have a full theology as he would summarize a passage. Well, Luther's theology is impeccable, of course, but I want to prefer, as I close today, the prayer I read of a simple believer who didn't have quite as much doctrinal finesse as Luther and read this passage and prayed this way, Lord, you know I cannot hold too much of you at one time. So, Lord, help me to overflow lots. Help me to overflow lots. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you go home today and talk to somebody about being at church, they'll say, oh, I suppose you had to sit there and while some pastor droned on for half an hour to tell you something. What in the world did he have to say in that half an hour anyway? I'll give you the 30-second version so you can repeat it. What I said in the last half hour is this. Christians are people who drink deeply from Christ in order that we can overflow lots and lots. Thanks be to God. Father, I pray that we might be going into this week opening our hearts and our hands before you and saying, Lord, upon whom can I overflow the joy that I know in Christ? How can I overflow the satisfaction, the fullness, the blessing, the peace that belongs to me because of knowing Jesus my Lord? Father, make it the prayer of many this week that we would overflow lots. Amen.